Let's take a Bible and open it together. 2 Samuel chapter 18. If you didn't bring a Bible, we've got a copy for you to borrow right on the back of the seat in front of you. Page 228. Page 228 in our copy for a 2 Samuel 18 in your copy. Out in the lobby. Can you guys hear okay? Raise your hand. Can you all hear? All right. God bless you guys. Remember, Saturday night, 1230. We have other options here, folks, but we're glad you're here. Hey, you know, I know Tiger Woods had quite a year, but when it comes to golfers, one of the greatest of all time was a fellow named Bobby Jones. In 1930, as a matter of fact, Bobby Jones won all four majors in the same year, a feat that has never been done before or after by any other professional golfer. In fact, in eight years of being on the tour, he won 13 majors, and he did it all playing as an amateur, if you can believe that. Now, uh, what was greater, though, than Bobby Jones' talent was Bobby Jones' character. In 1925, Jones lost the United States Open by one stroke when he called a penalty on himself that no PGA official could confirm. What happened is, he went into the rough looking for his ball, and when he found it, he was addressing his ball, getting ready to hit it, and when he was doing this, the ball spontaneously rotated on the ground just a little bit. Now, technically, that's a penalty. Well, he hadn't intentionally done it. He hadn't even made contact with the ball. Nobody else saw it happen, not even his caddy. But after he hit the ball and came out of the rough, he reported it and claimed a one-stroke penalty on himself and went on to lose the U.S. Open by the one stroke that he claimed in terms of the penalty. Later on, he was asked, if he ever regretted doing this. And he said, no, he deserved no special credit for enforcing a rule on himself. And he said he would rather lose a tournament with a clean conscience than win one with a dirty conscience. Now, folks, there is great power in being able to go through life with a clean conscience. And this is what we want to talk about today. We're using a passage from the life of David as our springboard But we want to talk about the power of a clean conscience in your life and my life as Christians here in the 20th century. So let's look a little bit right here, 2 Samuel 18, tiny bit of background. Remember, Absalom killed the young man who raped his sister. Absalom then fled into exile for three years. During those three years, David, his father, made no contact with him at all, completely shunned the boy. Then Absalom returned to Jerusalem, and yet for two more years his father David made no attempt to contact or even speak to the boy. And and after five years of this kind of rejection, Absalom became a very bitter, a very resentful young man, and rose up and overthrew his dad as king, ran his dad out of Jerusalem, chased him into the wilderness with an army to kill him. And as we pick up the story today, we find the two armies, the army of David, the army of Absalom, poised to join battle. And that's where we, that's where we pick up the story. So let's look together, verse 1. And David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the troops under his three generals, Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. And the king told the troops, I myself will surely march with you. I'm going to get right in the front and I'm going to be there. You know, it's me. I'm going to lead you in the battle. Well, the men said to him, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. 
but you, David, are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support here from the city. You understand the men say, David, listen, you're not some little shepherd boy anymore. You understand? You are the king of Israel. You are the central focus of the entire kingdom of Israel. If you go out there and some stray arrow or some stray spear kills you, I mean, the whole house of cards comes down. It's over. We're done. And oh, by the way, you're not as young as you used to be, oh, mighty king. You need to stay right here. We'll go out there and fight. You stay right here. Don't you move. David agreed to that, verse 5, but before they left, he commanded Joab and his other two generals, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king give this order concerning Absalom. Well, what happened next? Let me summarize. David's men went out. They won the battle. They beat Absalom's troops. And what happens to Absalom? Verse 9, he was riding on his mule, fleeing from the battle, and as the mule went under a thick, the thick branches of an oak tree, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree. And he was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. You say, now, Lon, come on. You don't really expect us to believe the man's hanging there by his hair, do you? Well, wait a minute. I want you to flip back for a second to chapter 14. Keep your finger in chapter 18, and I want you to flip back to chapter 14 and let the Bible tell you about Absalom's hair. No, really. Look at this. Chapter 14, verse 25. It says that uh, in all of Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Verse 26. And whenever he would cut the hair of his head, he used to cut his hair from time to time because it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels. Now, folks, 200 shekels is almost five pounds. So can you imagine going to get a haircut, and they put your hair on a scale that they cut off of you, and it weighs five pounds? I mean, talk about a guy that did not need Rogaine. You understand what I'm saying? This guy had some unbelievable hair. And as he was riding, his hair was flowing in the wind and it got tangled in these low branches and there he is hanging by his hair. Well, let's go back and see what happened to him. One of the soldiers came along and saw him hanging there and ran to Joab, David's general, verse 10, and said, hey, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. <laughs> and Joab said, you what? You saw him hanging in an oak tree? Why didn't you kill him? And the soldier said, ho, ho, boss, uh-uh, I heard what David said to you guys. When you left, David told you, be gentle with my son, don't you hurt my son, I don't care, you couldn't pay me enough money to lay hands on that boy. Joab said, well, watch, verse 14, and he went out and he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive hanging in this oak tree. And then, verse 17, they took Absalom and threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled up a large heap of rocks on top of him. They killed him. Now, meanwhile, David, of course, is back in this town. He doesn't know what's going on up at the front. There's no CNN reporting, so he has no clue what's happening. And so they send a messenger back to him. Verse 31, the messenger arrives and says, My Lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has delivered you today from all that who rose up against you. And the king, the first question he asked the messenger is, is the young man Absalom safe? 
is Absalom okay? The messenger said, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you, king, be like your son. Meaning, we got him. He's a goner. He's dead and gone. He won't bother you again. And the king was shaken. And he went up to the room over the gateway and he wept. And as he went, he cried out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is a problem. Because you've got David's troops coming back now. They've gone out and risked their lives. Some of them have even lost their lives to preserve him, preserve his kingship, save his life against Absalom. And now they come back. And what's he doing? Is he out there at the gate to greet them? No. Is he out there thanking them for what they did? No. Is he out there congratulating them and expressing his appreciation? No. Where is he? He's up in the room crying over Absalom. That's the problem. So Joab, when he hears about it, says, hey, you know what? I've had about as much of this as I'm going to take. So he goes to see the king. Look down with me, chapter 19, verse 5. And Joab went in to see the king and he said, today you have humiliated all your men who just saved your life and the life of your sons and your, your daughters. Verse 6, you love those who hate you. And you hate those who love you? Absalom would have cut your liver out in a heartbeat, David. What's wrong with you? You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men who went out and sacrificed their lives for you mean nothing to you. I can see that you would have been pleased if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead. Now he says, David, I'm going to tell you something. You better listen. I don't care whether you're the king or not. You better listen to me. You better go out and encourage your men because I swear by the Lord, if you don't go out there to encourage that army, there's not going to be a one of them left by morning. And you think you've had trouble up to now, pal. You ain't seen nothing yet. You better get out there and talk to those troops. Did Joab have a right to come in and talk to the king like that? You bet he did. He was asking David, David, what's wrong with you? David, how can you explain your behavior? Your behavior is totally inappropriate, completely unacceptable. What is the problem with you? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? That's a really good question. And we want to stop now and ask another really good question. And you know what this question is, and I know, you know, we haven't done this a couple weeks, so you've been going through withdrawal, and I know everybody's here, and you're ready to go, right? So ready? One, two, three. No ah, feels good, doesn't it? Yeah. All right. Say, Lon, so what? Well, friends, in, in all of this that's happening, there is a huge lesson for you and me here in the 20th century. Let's see if we can pull it out. You know, Joab's question was a wonderful question. David, what is wrong with you? Why are you acting like this? And folks, the truth is that David was a man of war. David was used to killing his enemies, being ruthless with his enemies. That was his standard operating procedure. What did he do with Goliath? When he knocked Goliath down with the rock in the middle of the forehead, what did he do? Came up, took his sword, whack, cut his head off. And then he fought the Philistines and killed thousands of them. The Bible says, 2 Samuel 8... That when David defeated the Moabites, he made all the defeated soldiers lay down in a line on the ground and he walked along whacking the first two, letting the third one live. So he whacked one, whacked two, you live. Whack one, whack two, you live. As they laid helpless on the ground. When the Ammonites rose up against him, he killed 40,000 of them in cold blood. Listen, this guy was used to being ruthless when you were his enemy. 
So how do you explain the fact that Absalom, his sworn enemy, who'd have cut his dad's liver out, as I said, if you gave him a chance, how can you explain David becoming paralyzed by grief like this over somebody who would have killed him in a heartbeat? Well, I think the difference is that here in 2 Samuel 19, my friends, David went into this battle completely differently than he went into every other of those battles I told you about. When he went into the battle against Goliath, Goliath had taunted the living God. Goliath had mocked God, made fun of God. So David went into that battle with a clean conscience about teaching that guy Goliath a lesson about God. And then when he came to the Philistines, they tortured and murdered God's people for centuries. David had a completely clear conscience about making them pay for their atrocities. And the Moabites and the Ammonites also had inflicted horrible suffering on the people of Israel. Read about it in the book of Judges and the book of 1 Samuel. So when David defeated them and made them pay, there was a clean conscience about paying these people back for what they had done to God's people over the years. But folks, when David entered into the fight with Absalom, his conscience was not clean. It was not. And that affected him. He entered that conflict with a conscience that was full of guilt and self-condemnation. You say, what are you talking about? Do you remember when he committed adultery with Bathsheba? How the prophet Nathan said to him, there are three punishments God's going to lay on you, and one of them is that your own son is going to rise up and overthrow you as king. And so as David was fighting Absalom, David knows that if he had not failed morally, if he had not committed adultery, and then if he had not ignored and spurned and alienated his son by his own behavior over those five years, none of this would be happening. That it's not just Absalom's fault. That a huge part of it is David's fault. And friends, here's the point. No matter what the situation is, if you and I enter that situation with a dirty conscience, we will never be able to be our best for God. We will never be able to be for God in that situation what we ought to be. David could not be for God in this situation what he ought to have been. Why? Because his conscience was dirty. It was dealing with self-condemnation and guilt. And that hamstrung him in that situation. Now, I want to talk to you today about our conscience. I want to talk about the power of a clean conscience in our lives. Because we can see in David's life what the power of a dirty conscience is. It's not pretty. What is a conscience, friends? A conscience, the, bi- uh, the, uh, the dictionary, not the Bible, the dictionary describes it. A conscience is the inner part of a person that tells us when we're doing right and rebukes us, warns us when we're doing wrong. You know the tragic plane crashes, Payne Stewart, Egypt Air, Flight 990. It's interesting as you hear all the people on TV and radio talking about what could have caused it. It could have been this, it could have been that, it could have been the other thing. One thing you constantly hear them say, and that is these airplanes were built with warning buzzers. These airplanes were built with warning systems that should have gone off to warn them if an engine shut down, warn them if decompression was happening, warn them if they were about to fly into a mountain somewhere. And folks, you know, the same is true about us as human beings. God has built us as human beings with a warning system, with a buzzer on the inside to go off when we start piloting our plane into a mountain. It's called our conscience. A conscience is like a moral gyroscope to keep us from crashing the airplane. And the Bible has a lot to say about our conscience. 
First of all, the Bible says, Romans chapter 2, that every human being alive is born with a conscience. You say, now wait a minute, if God says that, then God does not know some of the people I know. Well, that leads me to the second thing the Bible says about a conscience. Second of all, the Bible teaches that it is possible for us as people to deactivate our conscience. It's possible to get to the place where we can turn our conscience off and it doesn't work anymore. 1 Timothy 4, verse 2. God tells us there are people who, quoting from 1 Timothy 4, 2, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. And the picture here is the picture of a conscience being so covered with scar tissue that it's lost all feeling. It doesn't work anymore. You say, well, how do people do this to their conscience? Well, they do it by ignoring the buzzer time after time after time when it goes off, by rationalizing their behavior and justifying their wrongdoing over and over and over again until they reach the point where their conscience is so covered with corrosion that it just shuts down. It just doesn't work anymore. Every one of us here knows somebody like this. A friend, a co-worker, a relative, a neighbor, who can do the most unbelievable things, the most unethical things, the most heinous things, and, and there's no remorse at all. There's no registry of conscience at all. We all know people like that. What they've done is they've seared their conscience when God says you can do that. And if you don't know anybody like that, look right up here at me and you'll see somebody who was just like that. When I was in college, I had no buzzer left at all. None. I pushed dope to put my way through college, smuggled it in from Amsterdam, sold it on the streets of Chapel Hill. I stole equipment out of the chemistry building of the University of North Carolina to weigh my dope and cut it for street sale. I stole money from my fraternity brothers. I had the key to the Coke machine because I was the social chairman. Went in there regularly, stole money out of the Coke machine and used it for my own personal use. I lied. I cheated in school. I cheated in cards with my fraternity brothers. I betrayed my friends for personal gain. I got my girlfriend pregnant, forced her to have an abortion, and no buzzer went off inside at all. Nothing. I would completely turned my conscience off. And some of us here have been those kind of people in the past. We've been there. You say, well, Lon, I mean, it seems like your conscience works now. Well, it does, except when I drive on the Beltway. Other than that, it works fine. <laughs> and you say, well, how did you get this thing back on? Well, that leads to the third thing I want to tell you about that God says in the Bible about our conscience. Turn with me in the New Testament to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Hebrews 9, it's page 850 if you're using our copy of the Bible, page 850. And here in Hebrews 9, God's going to tell us how you get your conscience back on if you've turned it off. Hebrews chapter 9, look what it says. Verse 14. It says, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses our consciences. The blood of Jesus Christ reactivates our consciences. When we give our life to Jesus Christ, when we come into personal relationship with Him, God takes out spiritual sandpaper and He rubs the corrosion off our conscience and suddenly it starts working again. And if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you know how this works. Things when you, before you were a believer in Jesus Christ that never bothered you, you never lost sleep over, you never woke up in the middle of the night worrying about that, you never gave a second thought to, all of a sudden, those things bother you. 
The things you did, the things you said, they bother you now. Why? Because Jesus Christ, when He comes into a life, takes a conscience that's either partly dead or all the way dead, and He reboots it. He brings it back to life again. Why does He do this? Let me show you the rest of the verse. He does this. He cleanses our conscience. Look at the end of the verse. So that we may serve the living God. So that we may serve the living God. You see, friends, God is a holy God. Psalm 24 asks the question, Who can ascend to the hill of God? Who can stand in His holy place? And then the psalm answers it. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. If we want to serve Jesus Christ with our lives, if we want the blessing of God and the honor of God on our lives, we've got to be men and women who are dedicated to having clean hands and a pure heart. And friends, to live that kind of life, you and I need consciences that work. Consciences that are sensitive to even the smallest things we do or say that violate God, offend God, that are wrong that will cost us the blessing and the empowerment of God. It is impossible to live a life in this world of clean hands and a pure heart if you don't have a conscience that works. So a conscience that's on duty is central to being able to serve and have your life be useful to the living God. They would say, and you know folks, the Apostle Paul understood this truth. He wrote Timothy. And he said to Timothy, his young young pupil, he said, Timothy, I want to tell you the two things you need to be a successful servant of God. 1 Timothy 1.19. He said, the first thing you need, Timothy, is faith. And the second thing you need is a clean conscience. Read it. Faith and a clean conscience, he said. And Paul himself said that his goal in life, listen, Acts 24, is to strive always to have a conscience that is without offense before God and man. To strive to have a conscience that is without offense before God and man. Paul says, that's my goal every day of life. Why? Because Proverbs 28 verse 1 says that the wicked man, the man with a dirty conscience, flees even when nobody's pursuing him. But a righteous man, a man who can enter a situation with a clean conscience, the Bible says, can be bold as a lion. And folks, the only way you and I as followers of Jesus Christ can be bold servants of God in the situations of life the way God wants us to be is for us to go into those situations of life with our consciences clean. And they say, well, Lon, I understand what you're saying. How can I raise my quotient, my clean conscience quotient? How can I keep my conscience clean? Well, let me give you a couple suggestions and then we're done. Number one. Number one. Embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Folks, this is where it all starts. This is the most critical step. Let God remove the scar tissue and restore your conscience to life. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, one of the wonderful things that happen when you give your life to Christ is God turns your conscience back on. Now you might say, why would I want that? Right now I can do anything I want to do and it doesn't bother me. Why would I want it back on? I'll tell you why. Because living life with your conscience off is like piloting a plane with no warning buzzers in it. You're going to fly that plane right into a mountain. That's why. You're going to fly that plane right into the Atlantic Ocean. Trust me, I've seen it happen. It happened to me. Without a conscience that's working, folks, we are, we are incredibly vulnerable and exposed to making decisions that will self-destruct and destroy our lives. 
The only way to live a successful life is to have a conscience, to have a buzzer system that's alive and well. And the only way to get that is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I hope you'll think about that if you're here and you've never trusted Christ. You're headed for a mountain sooner or later and there's going to be no buzzer to go off. Number two, if you want to have a higher clean conscience quotient, number two, my second suggestion is listen to your conscience before you act. And the key word there is the word before you act. Now, you remember what the angel told Pinocchio. What did the angel say? The angel said, and always let your... Right. What's wrong with the rest of you people? Didn't you all see Pinocchio? Listen... To not see Pinocchio is un-American. Pinocchio, this is an American thing here. You remember? And always let your what? Your conscience be your guide. Listen to Jiminy Cricket. That's what the angel said. And I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of guy, my problem is I blow right past Jiminy Cricket. I mean, I'm on a mission, and Jiminy's going up, 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 and I'm gone. CNN, I make a mess. That's why God tells us to slow down and pray about things, to get on our knees and seek God about things before we act. Because when you're on your knees praying about it, you're in the position where your conscience can talk to you. You're in the position where you can slow down long enough to listen and ask yourself the question, "Is is it going to be worth the price I'm going to have to pay later if I violate my conscience now? The answer to that question is always no. But if you're in a hurry and you're not even thinking about it, you're going to blow right past that conscience and get yourself in a mess that's going to humiliate you and embarrass you that you're going to have to go back and fix. My wife and I went to the movies the other night and we sat through one movie. It was okay. And as we were walking out, we said, well, we wanted to see this movie. We don't have any place to go. Let's go in here. It was just starting. It was wonderful. So we went in and saw the second movie. I'm sitting in the second movie and I'm going, now, do I need to pay for this movie? And I went back and forth on that. And finally, as we were walking out, I said to Brenda, you know what, I need to go up and tell him we sat in a second movie and pay for this because I know what's going to happen. I don't really want to pay for this, but I'm going to get home and for days, my conscience is going to bother me and I'm going to have to come over here a week from now and walk up to some manager and tell him that I didn't pay for it and go through it. Hey, I'm going to end up paying for it one way or the other. I might as well pay for it now. Now, you say, Lon, you're a wonderful person. No, because I spent half of the movie figuring out how I didn't have to pay for it. (laughs) I'm not a wonderful person. Don't kid yourself. It's just I knew God wasn't going to let me off the hook. And I had two hours worth of movie to think about this. Well, a lot of times we need two hours worth of movie to think about stuff before we do it. We'll make much better decisions. You say, Lon, that's wonderful. God bless you. But you know what? I'm way past Jiminy Cricket. I mean, I'm on the other side of that a long way. I got some stuff I've done that I didn't pay any attention to him. What do I do? Well, that leads to my third suggestion, which is make up your mind, make a decision that a clean conscience is worth any price you have to pay to get it. It doesn't matter how much humiliation is involved. It doesn't matter how much embarrassment is involved. With God's help, you make the decision. You're determined to get your conscience clean. And the reason I say this is because unless you do step three, you'll never do step four. And step four is go make right what you did wrong. Go make right what you did wrong. Remember Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the... You don't know this one either? 
You don't know Zacchaeus. You don't know Pinocchio. What's wrong with you people? Okay. He climbed up in the sycamore tree and then you know the story. He went. The Lord had dinner with him. Luke chapter 19. And then Zacchaeus said this. Listen. He said, Lord, whatever I have cheated anybody out of. He was a Roman tax collector. He cheated people out of money for a living. Whatever I've cheated anybody out of, I will pay back four times that amount. Now, friends, that is the only way to get your conscience clean is to do what Zacchaeus did. To go send in that amended tax return. Yep. To go fix that lie that you told. To go fess up to the cheating you did. I don't care how many years ago it was. Go fess up. Get it right. To return that stuff that you stole, to break off the immoral behavior you've gotten involved in, to make amends to the people that you've hurt. Hey, if you took sick leave to go play golf, you need to go to your boss and say, hey, I lied, I took sick leave to do that, we need to change and charge it to my vacation. If you lied to your husband about how much you spent shopping, you need to tell that man the truth. You say, why would I do that? Well, because you've been through number three, you've decided whatever it takes, it's worth the price to get your conscience clean. Friends, the formula for power and blessing in the Christian life is the same for us that it was for Paul. Remember what Paul said. He said that I, my formula is always having a conscience that is without offense before God and before man. And if you sit here today and you can't say my conscience is without offense before God and before man then I'm here to tell you God wants you to go make it that way so you can say that. In a crowd this size, I believe there's a lot of people whose consciences are saying to them, Hello? Hello? I've been trying to get your attention for a long time. Now Lon's even talking about it. We need to go make this right. Come on, let's do it. Friends, your conscience is your friend. He's trying to keep you. She's trying to keep you inside the lines of the blessing of God. Listen to it. It's the best warning buzzer you'll ever have. Listen to it. And may God help you go back and pay whatever price you have to pay to get it clean and to keep it clean. Let's pray together. If you're here and, and, and you're willing to ask God's help to go back and make some things right and get your conscience clean, even though it may be really hard, you're willing to do it if God will help you, then why don't you take a, just a moment and let's pray and you tell God that this morning. Lord Jesus, you know how hard it is in our world to keep a clean conscience. And so I want to pray for two things today. First of all, I want to pray that you would help us to slow down in our lives, to make decisions that are bathed in prayer, and to take the time to listen to the voice of our conscience as the Holy Spirit motivates our conscience to talk to us. And if we hear it going... Buzz, buzz, buzz. Just simply not to do those things. Give us the wisdom, Lord, to, to listen to our conscience before we act. And my second prayer is for those of us here who have consciences that are defiled and dirty today and need to be cleaned up. 
that you would give us the courage that it takes, Lord, to go back and pay whatever price we have to pay to get our conscience clean. There will never be a more wonderful feeling than the smile of God as we clean up our conscience. So, Lord, motivate us to do that, I pray. For folks who've committed themselves to do that today, give them the courage that they need to do it. And Lord, thanks for talking to us today about how to keep piloting the plane so it doesn't run into the mountain. May you change the way we live because of what we learned here today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.